Good morning, everybody. We are just beginning, as you know, it's the second week of this series on Paul's Companions. And it's based on a very simple presupposition that most of us don't think of. And that is that Paul was not so much a great man as Paul had a great team. The reality that comes over in Scripture time and again is it's not just the person, it's those around them. And so when you look at Paul's team, at outstanding heroes like Tychicus and Trophimus and Epaphroditus and Onesimus and all of these household names, <laughs> you have to realize that these guys are really important. And they made the ministry of Paul what it was. Now, there's a reason for saying that, and it's this. We all get used to the idea of Michael. And we use terms like pastor to give honor and respect to those that God uses. But the reality is that Michael is not the church. Amen. <laughs> and the supporting cast is as important as the guy up front. And that when you look at Paul, what was achieved, so much was because of the team. So we're going to look at the team, recognizing that normally when you're preaching, you have a problem. Because you're so going to preach about Paul and say to people, you've got to be like that. And everybody looks and says, really? That is not possible. But when you take the supporting cast and say, that's what we're supposed to live like, it suddenly becomes a lot more straightforward and a lot more direct and a lot more painful. So get ready for a very uncomfortable morning. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that word is truth. So we pray that you'll speak to us from it. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. In Acts chapter 11... And verse 19, and let me give you the context, Paul has been converted. So he's been putting the boot into the Christians. He's been persecuting, imprisoning, and killing Christians. He's met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's been and met the disciples. They have reluctantly accepted him. More of that later. And now he finds himself in the most significant church in the early days of the Christian church. It was not Jerusalem. The most significant church was in Antioch. Antioch was the third uh, of the Roman cities. So it comes after Rome, and it comes after Alexandria, and then you get Antioch. But Antioch was so significant for the growth of the church. And the team that they developed there was extraordinary, as you're going to hear. Meanwhile, the believers who'd been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. 
When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And so we're going to talk about Barnabas and what his significance is for us. And uh, my dear friend Tim Wright, who has suffered listening to me more than should be inflicted on most people, he and Joanne will tell you how many points there will now be. How many? Four points, which there will be. Why is that? It's because when I was in seminary, you were taught that all good preachers use three points. I have always been a rebel, and therefore, for me, there have always been four. Uh, I also think that's much more logical, because it means that you create a consistent supporting argument. You've got four corners to it, and it works like that. So, four points. Here we go. <laughs> because I want to ask what you need to be like if you're going to be like Barnabas. Now, most of you are going to think, well, let me think. Intelligent. Seminary trained. Good public speaker. Outstanding strategist. Effective in communication. Now, as far as we know, Barnabas wasn't any of those things. Barnabas had four qualities, and here we go. Number one, he could recognize potential in somebody. That's really important. When Barnabas looked around a room, he could see what nobody else could see. The reason we know that's true is in Acts 9, he goes and gets Saul of Tarsus. He picks him out and introduces him to the disciples. Four or five years later, no, seven or eight years later, he goes and gets Saul of Tarsus and takes him to Antioch to join with him. When nobody else would have chosen Saul, Barnabas did. Because he was great at recognizing potential. In fact, in Acts 9, when he takes um, Saul to the disciples, everyone is scared of him. Barnabas, well, he overcomes his fear. He stands out from the crowd. He speaks up for Saul. In fact, he sponsors him. As one of the biblical commentators, William Barclay, has observed, Barnabas is the man with the biggest heart in the church. He actually gets it before everybody else does. He always believed the best of others. In fact, every time you read about Barnabas... He is helping someone else. The heroes of the church will be gathering around and providing those meals this week, both for one of our own 
and for those outside of our own community, as Ruth was explaining. It's really important. You recognize the potential in others, and you serve other people. The rest of the church in Jerusalem would have been much slower to forgive Saul of Tarsus. But Barnabas and Ananias were the two people who were prepared to forget the past and look to what the future was going to be. Now, this means a lot to me. And this is not necessarily going to be too easy to share. You see, when I went to seminary, most people did not believe that I was a Christian. And the reason they didn't was my hair was longer than everybody else's. I had a different set of attitudes. I'd got a different background. I was a thoroughly bad lad. Now, maybe I shouldn't say this to you, but when I started going out with the daughter of the president of the seminary, people got very concerned. They felt that this was going to be a bad witness for the seminary. They felt that this was not good news. And so they went to the president of the seminary as a delegation of the faculty and student body to tell him that, they, that he should stop this relationship between me and his daughter. Whereupon the president of the seminary, the Reverend Dr. Gilbert Kirby, looked and said, well, as far as my daughter is concerned, she's been teaching in Lebanon, and she ought to know what she wants. As far as Clive's concerned, I believe in a God who still does miracles today. <laughs> straight, straight quote. Uh, his wife didn't share his opinion. In fact, on the wedding day, um, Ruth's upstairs getting dressed and her mother's downstairs weeping her eyes out at this unmitigated disaster that is befalling the family otherwise known as me. Now, the reason I'm saying this is just to try to illustrate to you the reality that I was not a good lad or ideal choice uh, or ideal potential. While I was at that seminary, we had a guest preacher come to preach. And by this time, I was editor of the student magazine, which was a somewhat radical broadsheet under my tender care, and I tried to rock a few boats, and so with this visiting preacher, I thought it'd be great to get an interview, and because I was going out with the president's daughter, I managed to pull strings and get him to allow that interview to take place, so I sat down with this visiting preacher, who was actually an American, and I sat down with him and got this interview. It took about 10 minutes. When I finished, right at the end, it, it was quite extraordinary because this guy almost added as an afterthought, of course, in all the things that God is doing around the world, 
Now, I was a kid from the streets of the East End of London. I didn't know God was doing anything. So I, I looked kind of interest, interested, and so he said, yes, of course, in, in black Africa, in Southeast Asia, and in Latin America, the great things that God is doing, the revivals that are, are beginning, and the tremendous work of God. And I'm looking absolutely blank. At that moment, there's this huge banging on the door, because I'd borrowed the president's office to do this interview. And there's this banging on the door. And the aides of this preacher are saying, you've got an appointment. You've got to meet Lady Bird Johnson. Now, most of you here will have no idea at all who Lady Bird Johnson was. That her husband was president of the USA, Lyndon Berman Johnson, LBJ. And so the message is coming through to this preacher, you've got to get off to Heathrow Airport. You're meeting Lady Bird Johnson off the plane. And he spoke to his aides behind the door and said, I'm busy. And he knew how to use that term. I'm busy. So he went on talking to me. I think he'd realized by this time that he'd got a fish on the hook. Because I didn't have a clue about a God who was doing anything. And I was fascinated about the idea that God could be doing something. The idea that God could be bringing people to himself. The idea that God could be changing lives. Uh, I wanted to go and be a teacher in a school or something. The idea of doing something in church was the last thing I would want. The idea God was doing something was extraordinary. And so the preacher goes on and on, and the minutes are ticking away, and by this time he is 20 minutes late to leave for the airport, and there's this knocking at the door, you need to go, I am busy. And in the end, he said to me, can I pray for you? And I said, yeah. And so he prayed for me, and he prayed that God would help me to hear what God had for my life, and that I would get out of who I was and into what he wanted to make me to be. And then the preacher got up, some very relieved aides greeted him, and they drove off to Heathrow Airport half an hour late for Lady Bird Johnson. And I will be always grateful to Billy Graham for that conversation because it changed my life. Because that stopped any idea in my mind of what I was going to do and turned me to want to be a preacher who shared the love of Jesus and saw God change a little bit of this world for him. That's because somebody saw potential when nobody else would have seen it. My fellow students were horrified that Billy Graham would waste his time on someone like me. <laughs> As they told Ruth.
It was John the Baptist who spoke of Jesus and said, he's got to get bigger and I've got to get less. And that's what Barnabas was like. As I said, every time you see Barnabas in Acts, he's helping someone else. And so seeing potential is the first thing that God's looking for in those who are going to be used to build his church here. The second thing that God's looking for is those who exhibit loyalty. Those who exhibit loyalty. Those who stand together. In the Jerusalem church, there was great grace, great power, and great care. And Barnabas was leading the charge. In fact, the very name tells you something, Barney. Which meant son of encouragement. I wonder if people were going to give you a nickname, what they'd give you. Son of encouragement is not a bad nickname to have. Someone who's picked out and he lived up to his name. Everyone else is afraid of Saul. Barnabas sees the potential. Saul viciously persecutes the church. Barnabas is prepared to forgive him. It's a really strange thing that we so often catch on to the bad things and remember them and we fail to look for the good ones and exhibit loyalty. Now, there is something that's happening in the church at Antioch which is quite extraordinary. It was not that it was deep in Bible teaching. It was not that it sponsored deeper understanding. It was not even that the worship was noisier and more credible. What was extraordinary about the church in Antioch was that in the loyalty that they displayed to each other, they encouraged something that then took place. And it's the thing that we tend not to esteem in the local church. It's the thing we don't get hold of. And it's really important. I buried my assistant, my executive assistant of my old church. I buried her because this beautiful girl contracted a brain tumor and it killed her. And so with her husband and her children there, I had to do the funeral. And when I got to the cemetery to do this, she had left me one last message Leslie had. Because there was the coffin in the funeral car, and there all over the coffin with yellow flowers. Now, Joanne, you would know what that meant. And you would know what Leslie was saying. And I knew only too well. Because what a yellow flower meant to us was every time somebody met Jesus, we took a yellow flower and put it in a vase and put it in the church. 
we reckoned that over the year we would get about 200 yellow flowers. Now these were fairly hideous. They were sort of artificial yellow flowers. It wasn't the yellow flower. It was what it stood for. And it was the recognition that it wasn't that there were one or two people who were good at bringing others to Jesus or good at preaching so that others came to faith. It was recognizing that all of us helped people along the road that ended up with somebody meeting Jesus. And therefore, the church as a whole was committed in people becoming yellow flowers, which was not going to church, but was meeting Jesus, coming into a relationship where Jesus lived within them and led and directed their heart and life. The reality is this. The church of Jesus Christ is proud of most things. It is very rarely proud of the numbers of people who are meeting Jesus. We do not mean signing a decision card or praying a particular prayer. We mean becoming a disciple of Jesus, surrendering lives, being transformed, moving on that journey where God does everything in that new believer and I knew what Leslie was trying to say to me when I looked at that coffin covered in yellow flowers she was simply saying now listen boss one last time this is my family around here most of them don't know Jesus I want you to preach Jesus I want some yellow flowers today and it is so straightforward. What happens in Antioch is they start seeing people meet Jesus. And they start seeing so many people meet Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of the Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. The mark of a great church is not the numbers attending. It is not the power of the worship. It is not even the attendance at the prayer meeting. It is the transforming power of God at work through the people bringing others to Jesus. It's how many are turned through our lives, our words, our prayers, our demonstration of the grace of God and come to know Jesus. That's the hallmark of a great church. So I keep getting told, this is a great church down the road. Okay, how many people are coming to the Lord? Oh, we don't really believe in that. We're there to strengthen the saints, to establish those who believe. Well, that's important. Let me never deny that. But it is absolutely critical that we recognize that throughout Scripture, the mark of a church that is on fire is that people are meeting Jesus. And that's something we can't lose hold of. And Barnabas had got it. And so the loyalty that is exhibited by Barnabas to the believers is expressed in the fact that they go out and serve God so that people come to faith in Jesus. Barnabas himself is involved in evangelism. So is Saul of Tarsus. That's why they leave the safety of Antioch and go on those missionary journeys. 
They are trying to reach people who otherwise would not have been reached. It's of critical importance that we recognize that folks coming to Christ is the hallmark of where the church is really making it. Now, I know that's not popular. And I know that none of you are going to want me to preach like this. I know that that's the last thing people want to hear. We want to hear that the meetings get bigger. We want to hear that the prayer meeting is better. We want to hear that the discipleship program is stronger. We want to hear that uh, the, the ministry on Sunday is, is more fulfilling. We want to hear that we're getting more out of it. No! It's more people meet Jesus. Are the other things important? Yes, of course they are. They come straight afterwards. Once you've got lots of people meeting Jesus, then you can disciple them, teach them how to pray, teach them how to grow, and all the other good and great things. But you've got to bring them to Jesus. Have I got my point across? Right, then I will move on. But we're meant to be exhibiting loyalty. We're meant to be recognizing potential. And then thirdly, We want to be being obedient, being obedient. What has happened is that Barnabas has gone back to Saul of Tarsus' old hometown, which, amazingly enough, is Tarsus. I don't know if you've ever faced one of those quiz questions which asks you who is buried in Grant's tomb. Well, where Saul of Tarsus comes from is one of those. I haven't taken you to Tarsus, have I? That's a great place to go to. But that's where Saul comes from. And so Barnabas gets him in Tarsus and takes him off after Saul has been there for about eight years. And Barnabas takes him to Antioch. And in Antioch, there is a leadership team. Now, there are some fascinating things about this leadership team because they are rather different from each other. Barnabas is a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon is called Niger, or black. He may well have been Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. The father of Alexander and Rufus, who were well known to the Christian community and get mentioned in Romans and in Mark. There's Lucius, who's probably not the same person as Dr. Luke, but Lucius and Menaean, who was the close friend or foster brother of King Herod. They are an odd crew. And then they're joined by this arch-Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. What lessons are there? That what God wants is an obedience that doesn't mean we do the culturally convenient. We are ready to break out and to allow people of different backgrounds, different accents, different styles, different pedigrees to come together and provide leadership together. Some of these leaders are prophets and some are teachers. And those are two very different things. But they're fulfilling ministry not separately, but together. And 
When Barnabas is sent to Antioch, he's called a good man who is full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And that meant that he was always obedient. He was ready to do what he was told by God, even if it didn't fit in with what he would naturally have wanted. Now, there's a little problem here. Because Christians in this area have got a little problem. It is a basic sin not to put a fine point on it. And the sin is this. We baptize our culture. Oh, what is baptizing your culture? Baptizing your culture is discerning what most people think is the right thing to do and doing it and claiming that we do it because we're Christians. That is not what we're supposed to be like. We are supposed to be ready to be different. We're not supposed to imitate what the world is doing and then say it's in the name of Jesus. We're supposed to do what Jesus calls for and then acknowledge that in being obedient to him, we will normally break the rules of our society, which is a great thing. My friend David is sitting back there and he comes from Albania. And his father is one of my oldest friends. But if they lived as a family like the rest of the people in Albania, where would that get them? The idea is that Christians are different. Where did that get them? It became the closest thing to a revival I've ever seen. Because what happens when God's people start living God's way in God's world? And not trying to say that where the world is living is the right way. Now, Jay, you know that you do that as a judge. And you know that you do it when you go down and you're helping the kids across the road. That is antithetical to what one would expect from a judge. But it is exactly what I expect from Jesus and from people who love Jesus. And so it is so important that we are obedient, obedient to what Jesus says, obedient to what Jesus would do. Can I use another personal illustration? I told you that when I became a Christian, I was a bad lad. And the years passed, and eventually, for some reason, they made me head of the evangelical churches in the United Kingdom. And so I became uh, director of the Evangelical Alliance. One of my very close friends was a guy named Ian Barclay. Now, Ian Barclay was a wonderful guy. He was one of the top three Bible teachers in the four countries of the United Kingdom. And Ian and I were traveling on a, a train one day, and Ian said... I'd love you and Ruth to come for dinner with Hazel and I. I've got something I want to say to you. I said, great. So I went to see Ian and Hazel at their home, and we were having this delightful meal, and Ian said, it's really strange, God's sense of humor, and how he's made you head of the evangelical churches. 
They asked me to do the job. And I said, no, go and see Clive. As a number of my friends did. And now you've got it. So I've got something I want to say to you. You are the wrong person for the job. You are working class. It means a lot in Britain. You didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. You went to London for your qualifications, university. You are not a Bible teacher. You are a preacher of the gospel. You're an evangelist. You're a charismatic. You believe in the Holy Spirit. That's really worrying. There are so many things about you that just don't fit. Me, on the other hand, when they asked me, it was much more logical. I am a banker, Bible teacher, upper class, sophisticated, worldly wise, and ready for this kind of challenge. And they gave it to you, not to me, as I suggested to them. So I've got a question for you. You desperately need me. What do you want me to do? I said, I want you to become my director for the church's work. He said, great, I'd love to. Fourteen years later, I left the Evangelical Alliance and came to America. Fourteen years after that conversation, Ian left the Evangelical Alliance, because he'd finished his job. When I went, he left. It's really so simple. The loyalty, the recognizing of potential, and then the doing what God has told us to do. Ian didn't want to be church's director, but he did it because he knew I needed that. So what does God want you to do here at Salt? What does God want you to become here? How does God want you engaged? What does God want you ministering in? The next thing that happens is that church in Jerusalem was in the poorest part of the city. And famine struck. When famine struck, Paul and Barnabas took a collection and took the money to Jerusalem from the churches in Antioch and around in the Greek world to provide for them. The reality was so straightforward. They adopted humility as their lifestyle. It's so straightforward. It all starts out as being Barnabas and Saul. They don't get far on the first missionary journey, and it's Paul and Barnabas. The roles change, the positions change, the status changes. It's really strange that Barnabas, we read in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, could succumb to the restrictions that the Jews imposed on the Gentiles. Paul never would, so Paul denounces him. And Barnabas is even prepared to take Paul's rebuke. They get into trouble over 
Barnabas' cousin, John. And John Mark leaves that first missionary journey. And Paul won't have him back again. So Barnabas refuses to stick with Saul and goes with John Mark because he thinks John Mark needs the help to keep going. It is so easy to look at this guy and get the message. You're here to recognize potential in other people. You're here when you recognize potential to exercise loyalty and be faithful to other people. You're here to be obedient to what God has called you to do, and you're here to be so humble that you don't want the pride of place. You're ready just to serve. Like the lady who arrived at my house, out of the blue, because she knew that Ruth wasn't that well, and because we just needed help to move. And you recognized it, didn't you? And arrived on my doorstep. You're so blooming humble, you won't even smile at me. Thank you. But that's what it's all about. And church, if you want to be something that's going to revolutionize this area and this community, then you're going to have to be those who see what could be in somebody, not what they are now. You've got to be those who are loyal and committed enough to people never to give up on them. Whatever they've done, you're ready to forgive them for the past and together to build the future. You've got to be somebody who is ready to listen <coughs> to what God says and what God requires and get on with it. They're ready to be humble enough not to need the recognition or the first place. That's what Barnabas was. That's why he was so important. Now, some of you may be sitting there feeling very comfortable and saying, well, what did Barnabas do anyway? Okay, do you like reading the New Testament? What would you do if I said to you, I'd like you to take out a pair of scissors and I'd like you to cut out half of the New Testament? And get rid of it. You think you don't need Barnabas? Get rid of half of your New Testament. Why? Because half of your New Testament wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Barnabas. Because if it wasn't for Barnabas, Saul of Tarsus would never have been recognized as an apostle. And you'd have lost that part of the New Testament. And John Mark, his cousin, would never have been maintained in the faith and begun and done all that Mark did. You would lose the books by Mark and the books by Paul, and that's half your New Testament if you got rid of Barnabas. That's why it's so important that we encourage the Barnabases among us. That's why it's so important that we become Barnabas in what we do. 
That's why it's so important that we recognize that sometimes the ministry of encouragement is far more important than the people who got encouraged and went and did great things. Because that, without the encouragement, they'd never have done it. Got it? Good. What I want to ask of you now is very simple and very straightforward. I want you quietly to sit there and think of somebody who other people may not have time for, may not recognize, may not want to be involved with. And I want you to think of somebody who you are ready to encourage. Okay? Having thought of somebody who you would like to encourage, now I want you to think of somebody who it would be great if they encouraged you. Okay? And now let's pray. Father, thank you for those who we would like to encourage. Help us not to be people of good intention, but to get on with it. Father, you know that we all need encouragement. So those who we need to encourage us, would you help them to get the message and to realize that when we say we'd like to go out for a, a, a coffee with them or a beer with them or whatever, those who we would ask to come and join us in some endeavor, help us to realize that being family is what Jesus called us to be and what actually builds his kingdom and fulfills his purpose. Lord, help us to see the potential in each other. Help us to be loyal to one another. Help us to be obedient to what you require of us. And then, Lord Jesus, would you help us to be those who actually get on with what you have for us to do? And bring glory to your name through the fact that we do it together for your kingdom.